Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of the innovative payment software solution Square, now known as Block. And in our conversation, we discuss really how Jim went from a glass blower to a billionaire founder. We're also going to delve into how he and his co-founder Jack Dorsey took on Amazon and won, how he comes up with incredible business ideas, and how he builds businesses that can't be copied. Plus, you're also going to learn about Jim's newest founder course where he teaches his innovation framework on how to build an unbeatable business and a special Q&A segment from students just like you. So please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Jim McKelvey. Well, uh, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? AKA, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So it's weird. Um... I don't have one job. I have like seven or eight right now. Um, but the way I found myself in that position was I recognized that I'm actually not good at managing. I'm good at starting things. So um, 
I found companies and then get the hell out of the way, but then I have board duties or in some cases I get sucked in for little projects. Um, so right now, gosh, what am I doing? I'm the chairman of the federal reserve in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm actually working, um, on a biodegradable diaper, like the world's first truly eco-friendly diaper. That's taking a lot of time. Um, uh, Invisibly is probably my main activity. That's a company that helps you basically recontrol your attention. And then a bunch of other stuff. Like I've got, I don't think the audience would even want to know the other five things, but uh, um, yeah, I got, I got that way by not being a good manager. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, your, your most successful company thus far is you co-founded Square with Jack Dorsey. Um, was that your first company? No, no. Um, my first company was actually the first company that I worked with Jack Dorsey at, um, a company I called Mira, which I still own, actually. Um, it's been around for 30-something years, and it is uh, a publishing company in St. Louis. Uh, we were originally a software company. We pivoted into you know, scholarly and scientific publishing um, back when Jack was a summer intern. So Jack actually helped me transform the company um, during his junior and senior years of high school. And then he went off to college and uh, I kept running that company until I stopped running it and became a professional glassblower. Yeah, crazy. Um, So look, I know I've interviewed you before. You've taught an incredible program on our platform around, you know, how to build an unbeatable business. I want to talk about that piece around Amazon competing with Amazon but first you said you said something really interesting you realized at a certain period of time you're you're a better starter than you are manager can you tell us about when you realized that and why you think that that's important like for entrepreneurs to figure out if they are a better leader than they are starter or vice versa so that that's actually how Jack and I became um such good buddies because um I had this company there were about a dozen employees and we were publishing CD-ROMs for trade shows. So imagine going to a trade show and instead of getting a bag full of everybody's product literature um, that you would have to lug home, you got a CD with everybody's stuff on it. Now this was before the World Wide Web. So this predates you know, sort of the functional internet. Um, and companies didn't have websites. So our CD was the, the, it was the thing you had to get your products on. And we were making a pile of money um, it was a fantastic company. It was growing like crazy. And, um, then the internet came along and it was pretty obvious to me that the internet was going to wipe out our core business. Um, so, you know, we had about 18 months before, you know, the growth of the World Wide web would, you know, sort of severely hit us. And I said, okay, we've got 18 months to pivot. And I had some ideas on how we could pivot into scientific publishing, which was very sort of a related field, not as profitable, but, you know, certainly a good, a good business. Um, and I got the whole team together and I said, okay, guys, here's this internet train is coming and we're lying on the tracks and it's going to run over us. So we're going to move over here. And they, they were all like, oh yes, Jim, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to do that. And then nobody did anything. And then, you know, I call them together two weeks later. I was like, come on, you guys have to start doing this. And oh yes, yes. They were so addicted to what they were already doing that none of them changed. And the, the only person at the company who would listen to me, and I was CEO. The only person who would listen to me was our in, our summer intern. He was 15 years old. His name was Jack Dorsey. And Jack basically thought that he should do what the boss asked. So I was like, Jack, we need to build this. He was like, okay. So Jack and I 
by ourselves just went off and built the new company. And then we let the train basically run over the old company. Like eventually the internet showed up and just destroyed everything else. And, um, and that taught me two things. One, it taught me Jack is a very capable person, even when he was 15. Um, the second thing it taught me uh, was I'm a crap manager. Like a decent manager should be able to make a company pivot away from its own destruction. Mm. Not me. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't got, I don't got it. Um, so from that point on, I've been uh, extremely humble in my managerial aspirations, which is to say, if I start a company, I always partner up with somebody who's a good manager. So when we started Square, Jack wanted to run it. I was like, oh, you're a good manager, or at least you want to be. So it's all yours, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good realization to have. But I have to ask, like you're chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, St. Louis. So like, isn't that being a good manager? Like you have to be a good no. manager. No, no, I'm chair of the board. I, I chair the board. We, uh, we report on interest rates. We have, you know, ceremonial meetings with the FOMC in, uh, you know, in, in Washington, DC. I have a, I have occasionally to uh, reprimand somebody for saying something they shouldn't. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's not like I'm in there on a daily basis, you know, doing monetary policy. Um, I'm, I'm just one voice. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I try not to do stuff that I know I'm bad at. I mean, I will try stuff that I don't know I'm bad at, but I will not, I try not to repeat the mistakes. But you can hold people to account though. It sounds like you can definitely hold people to account. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I can fire you. Like if you do something that's fireable, out you go. Like I've got no problem with that. Um, but I think a good manager can intercede well before firing is an option. Like a good manager can inspire and motivate and help people track and improve. And, you know, I don't honestly don't know what a good manager does. I just know that historically I'm probably not the guy to do that stuff. <laughs> so like at this point, I get a lot of traction making completely new businesses. Um, a lot of companies bring me in to help them um, come up with new ideas. As a matter of fact, there's a company, I can't tell you the name of it, it is major, major you know, international company um, that's been sort of moribund for the last 20 years. They ha like they haven't created any interesting new products and they're bringing me in to help them. I don't know what, but like, I'm gonna try to shake things up, but I'm not gonna try to run it. Uh, that, 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 that's not me. Yeah, so talk us through that, like this idea of, because uh, you taught an incredible program on our platform around how to build an unbeatable business and the premise, a big premise is the, the your innovation stack and framework around how to basically build an unbeatable business where what you guys did at Square, you competed with Amazon and and effectively beat Amazon. Like how did that feel um, when Amazon gave up competing against you? Can you talk us through this kind of process? Well, I mean, it was relief and then frustration and then confusion. Like the, the relief was that when you think you're going to die because Amazon's attacking you and you don't die, well, that's pretty good. There's a big release there. Um, then the question is, well, why not? Like, what happened? And, and, and that's what sort of led me down this path that led to the book and led to your course and led to all this study that I've done. Um, because what happened at Square was not unique to Square. What happened at Square has happened at hundreds, hundreds of other companies. But it's still a rare phenomenon. And 
So I studied that phenomenon in, in detail and I came up with this pattern and, and I just never seen anybody explain it this way. And I had lived through it enough that I was like, yeah, I think this is true. But it wasn't until I did the academic research and then some you know, historical research that I actually convinced myself that, oh, actually, this is not an accident. This is actually a repeatable process and it can be taught. So that's, this is why we have a course. Um, and this is why I'm hoping that people will, will sort of get these basic ideas, which is you know, fundamentally that you know, if you put yourself in a situation where the only option is to create something new, you can do that. Like you can build something new. It's just really, really difficult. And it's not something that we understand as humans. Like most humans are very good at copying. We are not very good at originating. Hmm. Cause that's, that's how most businesses kind of, uh, birthed is, is you're looking at an existing model. You're looking at an existing product or service and just tweaking things just slightly. Yes, uh, most businesses are tweaks or complete ripoffs, and I'm not. I'm. I, there's no judgment in that statement. I think ripoff sounds. That's probably, probably denigrating. Look, copying something that works is really smart. Find something that works. Do the same thing. That's a great formula for success. Don't argue with it. The only time that doesn't work is if the thing you're trying to do hasn't been done before, so there's nothing to copy. So my whole energy is spent in that world where you can't copy. And, and then you have very weird skill sets and tool sets and weird employees and like everything's just different over here. But believe me, you will be sort of happier and probably wealthier if you live in the world of, you know, rinse and repeat copying. Um, I just find that that's sort of not what I'm wired for. So I live over here in the weird, 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 weird world of stuff that hasn't been done. Yeah. And talk to me, like, how can you, like, what, what are some, what are, we can't go for it all. And we, you did an incredible program on our platform and we've talked about it before, but for those that are listening, talk to us a little bit about this framework around how you can build a, a business that can't be copied. Okay. Well, um, so first of all, I wouldn't say that should be your goal. Yes. Like, I, I don't think it's, it's smart to say, I'm going to build a business that nobody else can do. Because what you'll do is maybe you'll succeed, but then you'll have a product that nobody cares about, right? Mm. Um, I approach it from the problem standpoint, which is to say, pick a problem that you care deeply about. And I mean, you personally care about, because if you don't care about it, you'll quickly run out of energy. Like there's no amount of money in the world that is as motivating as sort of a personal conviction. conviction. If something you care about and you wanna fix or wanna change or wanna create, like that's good energy, that's a good energy source and that'll keep you going. Um, but you start with that problem. And then from that problem, what you will find if that problem is unique, if that problem is something that the world has not really solved, um, then I think you should stop and ask yourself the question. And this is you know, what I talk about in your course and in my book and all this you know, work that I've been doing. Do I really wanna go there? Do I really want to build something that hasn't ever been built before, because that is a difficult and different journey and it's way less statistically successful. Can still be done, but you can't prove that it can be done. Whereas if you're copying a formula that's worked for everybody else, well, unless you're lazy or stupid, it's probably gonna work for you too, you know? So, so ask yourself the question, but if the answer is yes, I wanna do this, then a nice side effect 
of that journey, if it's successful, is you'll build something that nobody else can copy. Like you will build something that if you follow the principles in, in the course that we teach or the book, you can defend that monopoly for as long as you want. As long as you play by the rules that I've you know, sort of found work for these other companies that were in that situation, man, you can extend that runway as long as you want. Um, but the big message here is start with a problem you care about. And don't worry about building an unbeatable business. That's a side effect of having to solve a problem that nobody else has solved before. Mm. And what were some of the things that you did at Square that that allowed you guys to effectively uh, outcompete Amazon? The, the only strategic move was not a strategic move at the time. We didn't know we were doing it. Um, but we tried to build a very simple payment system for people like me. I mean, I'm an artist. I sell glassware. Um, I sell stuff nobody needs, right? And I sell it when I can sell it to whoever has the money to buy it. And one day I lost a sale and I was pissed off because I couldn't take a credit card. And that motivated me to want to build Square. And it seemed like a very simple idea. I told Jack about it and he was like, yeah, let's do that. And we, we literally had the product working in three weeks, like hardware, software, whole thing. It worked, took money off your credit card, put it in my bank account, three weeks. What we didn't know, and this may have been a strategic decision, but I don't think, it, well, it wasn't a strategic decision. It was a strategic accident. What we didn't know was that we were so far out of the norm for what the financial industry was expecting or permitting that we had to spend the next year and a half inventing and creating 14 different things that had never been done before. And that was our innovation stack. It was all these different things that the world had just never seen in the financial world, at least had never seen. And um, that turned out to be our greatest defense because you know Amazon could copy one or two or maybe five things. Like if they're really good, they can copy five. But for them to get 14 things right all at once, almost impossible. Was it a big part of patenting and IP that helped protect you guys? Absolutely not. The only patent that we had that was worth anything, I screwed up and we lost because I didn't know what the hell I was doing with patenting. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So um, a friend of mine uh, who I had invited to help on do some of the hardware. So I built the hardware. Yes. Um, uh, told me that he'd handle the patents for us. He's like, oh, I know how to do patents. I'll do patents. So we patented it in his name, not in the company. Like he basically kept the patent for himself. And I was too naive to, I didn't know intellectual property. So like I didn't put my name on the patent, even though the original idea I had copied out of Make Magazine. So like the first issue of Make Magazine, if you get issue number one, you will see a credit card reader that plugs into a cell phone as a project like that. So you even think that was an idea? No, no, no. That wasn't even an original idea. Like what Square did, not original. Um, but I, I, I blew, I, I screwed up the patent and uh, we ended up having to fight our own patent in court. We got the patent extinguished. So the patent got invalidated, but then, you know, so it was just a total, it, it, it was like a case study of how not to do intellectual property, but we had no protection in IP. Now we have a bunch, but we typically don't sue companies over patents. Yeah. Wow. Unless they sue us, in which case we'll sue you back. <laughs> yeah wow so like how come how come your friend did that like where, where like what was up with that uh i don't know we're not friends anymore he got very very greedy um i don't know 
it, it breaks my heart. I mean, because he could have been like at one point, the stock that he was offering that we're offering was worth over a billion dollars. Like he would he could have been a billionaire, like a billionaire, just if he'd said, OK. Thanks. Like I, like the word thanks, he'd be worth a billion dollars as it is. He's not. Yeah. Wow. What a crazy story. Thank you for sharing. So let's talk about like ideas. Um, so you said, you know, a, a well-known business or a big business you can't name have asked you to come in and shake things up. What's a good idea? Like how, where do you get, how, where do you find inspiration? Where do you draw inspiration from ideas, shaking up businesses, innovation? Talk to us about that. Uh, for me personally, I just go around and let the world anger me. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I wish I had some sort of meditative practice that gave me visions or some sort of drug that I could ingest or, you know, hallucinogen or any of that stuff. Um, I've actually met people who claim that that's how they do stuff. You know? um, one of the writers of my favorite television series, like gave me his drug regimen. Like when he can't come up with ideas, it's just this massive cocktail of, you know, hallucinogens and stimulus. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm too, too afraid to take it. But um, no, in my case, um, I just go about my daily business. And then occasionally I'll see something that just looks wrong. It looks, it looks like a crime. It looks like something that's, that needs to be fixed. You know, it'll piss me off and it'll piss me off enough that I'll ask myself the question, do I want to try to fix that thing? And a lot of the times the answer is no, I don't really care that much. You know, um, I'm pissed off, but yeah, I'll get over it. Uh, sometimes it just wakes me up. Sometimes it gnaws at me, sometimes for years. Um, and then eventually I wake up and I go, well, it looks like nobody else is going to do this. And I understand why nobody else wants to do that. Because frankly, doing something that's never been done before is a brutal process. Like it's kind of unpleasant. Um, but I at least know what it's like now. And I'm more, I won't say I'm more resilient, but I'm, I'm more familiar. Like I'm just more, like I kind of know like if you live in a city with bad weather, you kind of get used to bad weather. But if you're from San Diego or I don't know, Adelaide, I don't know, wherever you have that's good weather, I don't live there. I live in a city with crap weather. I got a, two sweaters on right now. Like this is, you're, you're ready for it. You're tougher. So I, I think I've, I've lived in enough bad weather cities that at least mentally when I do something new, um, I am more prepared for the shocks and the disappointments and the bad feedback and the lawsuits and all the crap. I'm just used to it. Yeah. So, cause a common thing that happens to people where they want to start a business, they don't know where to start. They always say, I don't have a good enough idea yet. Um, and for you, you have plenty of ideas, but what is it that is it, is it just keeps coming back to you? Is it something that stirs with you? Is it's, it's generally not something that you just comes down and go, bang, I'm going to do this straight away. It has, it has to sit with you, right? I have to convince myself that I really care about it. Yeah. So, um, like I felt really guilty. I had, we had our second kid, uh, five years ago and I was changing a lot of diapers and I felt like super guilty about all the diapers because I would be like throwing away a diaper and with the full knowledge that that diaper was 10 times more durable than the baby I was putting it on. Right. Like the kid's good for like a hundred years and the diaper lasts for like a thousand. The molecules in that diaper are going to be on the planet far longer than my daughter, you know, probably. And, um, and I use a lot of diapers <laughs> and, and I was thinking, 
man, somebody ought to do something about this. Like diapers are terrible. And I just kept thinking about that. Like these things are horrible. Like, I wonder if you could build an eco-friendly diaper because nobody's done it. Like I looked for them and there's a bunch of greenwashing, but they're all made of plastic. Like every diaper is just plastic, plastic, plastic. Yeah. And the stuff doesn't degrade, you know, and this bio diaper, none of them work. Trust me, none of them work. So uh, I've got a laboratory going. I've spun up a lab that's doing materials research on a truly biodegradable. Right now it's an edible diaper. Like right now the stuff that we're using is so pure that I could actually make a bowl of it and consume it. It would not taste good. I, you'd probably have to put some soy sauce on it. But like, it's something that speaks to me. Like, I don't know why I care about that. Probably because I feel guilty for something I personally did. This is, this is gonna be frustrating to your people. I, okay, so here's to the guy who's sitting here going, Jim, just tell me the idea. I just, I just wanna get rich. I just, I wanna, I wanna stop working for the man. Like I wanna get out of my nine to five or whatever job you like. I don't wanna wait tables anymore. Like I, I know that I've waited. I'm, I feel you. You just don't want to work for the man anymore. Give me a business idea. Don't worry about changing the world. If that is the case and you are willing to work hard, there are thousands of opportunities. Thousands. Pick any business you kind of like. Find a good example of it. Copy the thing. You'll probably succeed. It's not that hard. You got to work hard, but you don't have to do any miracles. It's not that tough. People will do it every day. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can always hire an expert. Go to a trade show. Read a blog, plenty of stuff. I don't want to discourage people from doing that. But what I want to do is speak to the people who occasionally find themselves in the place I was with the diaper, which is there is no such thing as an eco-friendly diaper, period. There are cloth diapers that you can wash, but if you're poor, you can't use them because poor people can't use laundry machine or can't use laundromats for cloth diapers. I don't know if you know this, you're, you don't look like you're very poor, Nathan, but like, like if you, like if you live around where I live, people use laundromats and they can't afford washing machines. So they can't afford cloth diapers. And anyway, you know, nursery schools don't let, don't let you have cloth diapers anyway. So you're going to pay for the pampers and you're going to pay a lot of money. And you're going to do a lot of damage to the world. And I care about that. So I just, I want the person hearing this who stumbles upon some idea that they care about that hasn't been done before to go, oh, yeah, I actually could do this. And if I succeed, the payoff will be massive. But, you know, that's secondary. Solve the problem first. I have to ask you as well. So it's clear you are a serial entrepreneur. Like you're a serial starter, serial entrepreneur. Actually, I'm more of a parallel entrepreneur. Okay. Like I got several things going on simultaneously right now. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's it's. I, I know you say serial, but I, I don't want to sort of, mess your semantics up but i don't run stuff like i always partner with people so i say i've got a diaper lab i don't run the diaper lab i've got a glass blowing studio i don't run the glass blowing studio you know i've got you know a company that's building phenomenal technology called invisibly i don't run that i don't run you know jack runs square like i don't or we now call it block i mean i'm just the other guy there's the top person and then there's me so I do that in parallel. But still, from a time allocation standpoint, where I was kind of going with this is how do you know when you have time to start the next one? And how, do, how, 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 how can it, does it ever get too much with a family and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, um, it does. I mean, I have to be careful, especially with family. So, um, 
you know, one of my rules is no screens at home. When I'm home, I'm really home. I got a bunch of other rules. I come home. Like I, one of my things is I fly planes. I have a, I get home. I had a four day meeting last week. I showed up for 24 hours and they were kind enough to schedule the 24 hours of actual work in the four days around a block that I could fly in, do my work and leave. And I got home for dinner. I'm not saying it's ideal. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be probably a better parent if I was home even more. But also, you know, the other thing is I'm pretty wealthy now. Like Square has caused a lot of money to appear in the McKelvey bank account. And I just don't think it's cool for them to see their parents not working. Like, I don't think that's a good message either. So I got, I got, I got to raise kids who are around, you know, wealth. And I don't know, maybe I'm rationalizing my own behavior. I'd probably be doing it anyway. But I like to tell myself I'm doing it for the kids. Do you experience burnout? No, not in the traditional sense. Because remember, I always have partners. Like every one of these things that I start, um, I start and start and start until I find the right partner. And then they run. And then I basically work for them. So like the diaper lab, that took me a year to do. And I started just out of frustration, making, making prototypes in my bedroom. Like I, I went out, I got a sewing machine. I got a bunch of materials. I had a friend who had a, uh, who had a fashion company. I went down and worked at her her uh, workshop for a couple of, you know, you know, a couple of days. And I got some prototypes together and I was like, I, I'm going to build this myself. I'm going to build it myself. And then I got my prototypes together and I was like, okay, now I need to hire somebody. And I hired somebody and they were terrible and I hired somebody else and they sucked. And I hired somebody else and they maybe pay them a bunch of money and they didn't do anything. And then, you know, the fourth try, I got somebody who actually worked at my glass studio who was fantastic and wanted to do the diaper thing. And I was like, you run it. And she's been phenomenal. And so now we're going right. That doesn't cause a, it doesn't cause burnout in the sense of like, I run out of energy. It just causes burnout. It's kind of like, ah, oh, crap, it's not working again, you know? So. Because it's really fun to start things. But for me, uh, I have to kind of always try and contain myself. And I've had to, over the years, just kind of go, you know what? Need to focus, need to focus, need to focus. Because it's really fun to start things. I agree. And I don't think you need to focus. You need to have somebody else who is focused, whom you, will, whom you trust. And that's actually more, probably more difficult. Mm, yeah. Look, man, I could talk to you all day, but uh, I don't really enjoy this conversation, but I know we have to work towards wrapping up. We're going to move to the hot seat round if that's okay. Okay. Um, and I've not been fed these questions in advance, just for the record. Yep. 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 So rapid fire. All right. So uh, what daily habit makes you a better founder in person? I don't wake up to an alarm. I sleep until whenever I can and I don't stress myself out in the morning. So I come to work happier. Who do you trust in business? Um, people I've worked with, people I've seen. And I tend to trust everybody. So I, I'm a sucker for trusting everybody. If you could go back in time, what's the one thing you would change about Square? Not a damn thing. And I'll tell you why. I think we've been phenomenally lucky. Like we, we passed a hundred billion dollars in market cap at one point. And now we're down from that now, but we'll be back. Like that is an insane run of good luck. I mean, a lot of smart people, a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication and, 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 and you know, all nighters and stuff like that. But uh, would you want to mess with that? Would you want to like have those butterfly wings flap some other way? Not me, brother. You know, let it ride. Don't, don't. Don't need the DeLorean. Love it. 
Where's the best barbecue in St. Louis? Oh, God. Um, the best you can go to um, is uh, Salt and Smoke. And the best you can't go to is this little guy out in St. Charles who only opens up during the summer. And I could give you directions there, but I don't know the name of the place. Like, it's just this dude off the side of the road. And he does not have a health rating on his pickup truck, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what's the one thing someone will learn if they enroll in your program, how to beat an unbeatable business on the founder platform? What's the number one thing they'll learn? The one thing they'll learn is to recognize the line between when you should innovate and when you should copy, which is a mistake I made for years. Like I spent so much of my time failing because I was doing stuff that was appropriate in normal business, but was not appropriate in the world of innovation. And that crushed me. And I made that mistake for 20 years without, without recognizing it because, you know, I would, I just thought I was an idiot. Like I just like, I would go out and I would, I would copy the practices that worked in this different world. And then I would take them over to my world and do them competently, I thought, but they wouldn't work. So the only conclusion I could come up was I was incompetent. It turns out I may still be incompetent, but in fact, there's a different set of rules that applies if you're innovating. And what your course will teach is that. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? APG Anini. Founded the business, biggest bank of the world. Uh, gave away all his money, which is why you don't know him, like the Carnegies or the Rockefellers, but he was a humble man. But he, he could have been the richest person in the planet and he did exactly what we did at Square 100 years before. And um, I, I study him in the book, but I've never met the man and I would dearly love to. Incredible. Well, Jim, it was an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, uh, look forward to connecting again in the future. What a pleasure, Nathan. All the best, man. Bye-bye. Hey, Founder Fam. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Jim. As a special treat, we're going to include our exclusive workshop that we did live with Jim presented to the Founder Plus community in which Terry, our community manager, and Founder Plus students go in depth on all their burning questions. So make sure you stick around. This one is not to be missed. It's not too often that we are talking to a new instructor at Founder, and it's not too often that we're talking about a new course that's being launched, but that's what we're here to do today. I've got Jim McKelvey with me. He's our, our new instructor here at Founder for our new course, How to Build an Unbeatable Business. Now, some, if not most of you, will be familiar with, with Jim's work. Uh, he's a glass blower turned billionaire co-founder of Square, which is now Block, uh, one of today's most visionary minds on innovation. And he's going to showcase through the course and through our chat today what he believes to be the, the method to build an unbeatable business. Uh, the idea and the purpose of this session is to introduce you to understand how to build a resilient, fast-growing, and highly profitable business in any economy. And uh, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. This is going to be fun. Hey, Jim. Yeah, I have a, a payment strategy question. Uh, um, we've built the largest... ACH mobile payments platform in the cannabis retail industry. Um, and we have about 200,000 active users. We're growing 7% month over month. Uh, good. 
And, yeah. And we're really uh, recognizing though, that um, in order to really succeed, we got to, we got to jump to the next adjacent vertical uh, outside of cannabis because federal legalization is coming and we're going to have to compete with credit cards at some point, no matter what. And how are you a premium right now? Cause you're a weirdo who figured it all out, but they're about to make what you're doing too legal. Too legal. Yes, exactly. And yeah, you're about to get too legit. All right. Too, too legit. Yeah. I get so it. How, how would you think it? How would you think about the next vertical adjacent vertical competing? You know, yeah. What would you do? Uh, well, first, I'd look at what you're good at. I, I mean, are you good at serving, uh, you know, quasi-legal entities? And where's the next one? You know? Um, and I don't know what sort of back page uh, uh, businesses there are that, that are the equivalent of cannabis. But that might not be what you're good at. Like, it, it, it may turn out that you've got some sort of other core strength. You just sort of got strong in the cannabis world and then, you know, are going to go out. I mean, if um, what, what one thing we we got really good at by necessity is that we, we guarantee these ACH payments and you got it. You got a 48 hour window in the ACH sure. network clear. Right. And we guarantee the payment. And, you know, not everybody's bank account has cash in it when it goes through. Uh, and, and so and I don't want to get too too deep on sort of a payments consult, but I assume you're working, you don't have a banking license. You're working through a bank with a license, yeah, right? Yeah, in Colorado. Yeah. And so we, what we're really good at is we built a machine learning model that's predictive around whether or not a transaction is going to clear. And oh, yeah, so that's, that's hugely relevant. I mean, you just described Novell Netware. I mean, I, I'm looking at you thinking you might remember Ray Norda. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you remember net, Netware in the early days, sorry to put everybody under 40 to sleep, but um, <laughs> like Microsoft was the big bad bully in the computer world. Uh, and there was a little company in Utah that continually kicked Microsoft's ass and nobody else did. And it was this company called Novell. And they made this product called Netware. Now, originally they had a suite of products, kind of like you have, um, but uh, and they had all this stuff, you know, hardware and software, but they had this like little piece of software that was the glue that everybody want. If you've actually got predictive analytics for fraud, yeah, that's a hundred million dollar business. Easy, easy. It's a billion dollar business if you're good because everybody's doing that. Now, how do you know that you're doing to get that well? And are your models trained and are they net unique? Like, I don't know. I don't know what your innovation stack looks like on that business. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's pretty easy to go through. I mean, just make a list of all the, you know, the 20 things, you know, that nobody else does. If it's more than five or six things, you've got a pretty defensible business. If you've got 10 things or more, you could almost publish exactly what you do and no one will be able to copy it. Like once, hmm. like according to my research, if you get past 10 and actually this isn't something I put in the book, um, but the math of of doing 10 things right simultaneously is almost zero if somebody's trying to copy you. So if you've got that and it's already been sort of debugged on the cannabis industry, um, then, I mean, God, every payment company is going to be looking for this. So you just, 
you, you know, payment SaaS, it's a great model. Right, right, right. Um, okay, I have a zillion follow-up questions, but it's it's very niche. So yeah, sorry, man. I we we get too too. I love your Somebody course. Somebody asked me a really specific glass blowing question. <laughs> For the glass blowers in the audience, you should all be really upset that the lithium in the world has disappeared. The 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 battery companies are buying up all the lithium, and lithium is a component in 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 crystal. And like we're having to reformulate every glass formula around the world to not use lithium. It's a real problem. There, another niche answer. Thanks, Bob. Harisha. Hey. So in your, uh, when you were describing your, like your background and everything, you know, you said you got in touch with the CEO of Southwest. Uh, how did you exactly do that? Like, is there a, like a strategy for connecting with high profile individuals like that? Well, it helps to have a company that he's heard of and to be very respectful. I, I wrote him a letter figuring that anybody over the age of 50 probably read letters. So I didn't try to send him an email or any of that stuff or call his office or get an intro. I, I, I got an intro from, um, so he was chairman of the Fed in Dallas and I was on the Fed in St. Louis. So, you know, I was able to sort of work uh, out who his assistant was. And I just sent a very nice letter. I said, Mr. Kelleher, I've been doing this research. Here's my phone number if you ever want to call. And to his credit, he didn't book an appointment send me a notice, calendar invite. He just called my phone. And like, I can tell you where I was standing. I was in the square office next to the copy machine. I looked down, I see a 214 area code, which I just happen to know is Dallas, Texas. And I was like, 214, that's where Herb lives. And I answered the phone and sure enough, it was Herb. So, I mean, you kind of got to know your mark. Um, people are really tough to reach these days and are becoming tougher. Um, Actually, a little product that I'm working on right now that is not legal because it like Microsoft blocked it, but I'm working on a paywall for your email. You can have a personal paywall. Like if somebody wants to email you, you like put up the hand. Um, so it's it's very tough to reach these people these days. That said, the direct approach worked really well for, for her. And the other thing is, you know, uh, don't underestimate humility. Uh, don't brag too much about how cool your company is. You want somebody to talk to you? Thanks a lot. Philippe? Yeah, hi, James. Hi, Terry. Good to see you again. Um, I'm a designer, industrial designer, so I just do physical products. And um, so by nature, innovation and very often disruption is, is where I, I, I dwell. So I, I really hear what you're saying. At the same time, this is my area of play. So um, when that's your water, so to speak, uh, where you swim, any advice you can share about, you know, once you're here, uh, what kind, type of mindset should you have or what type of tactics should you adopt or stuff like that so that make the journey a bit easier? So I can tell you a really interesting industrial design story. I'm the guy who made the square reader, the little white thing. I should I should have one on me, but I... Uh, we know what that is. <laughs> I, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's this little thing and it reads a credit card magstripe and we're phasing them out because magstripes are being phased out. But Basically, it's this long, and it should be this long. Like any decent industrial designer, uh, and in fact, like all the guys who've copied us have have realized that our unit is too narrow for the card to smoothly move through. 
like it rocks because you know you got this little little surface and if the surface was just twice as long it would work but it's basically an inch long and the cards rock until until you practice a little bit mm-hmm. so the question is i'm a good engineer and i figured out very early like on my second prototype that long readers work better than short readers so the question is why did we reduce why would we do we release a short reader why did i purposely compromise my industrial design and get a product that worked 80% of the time when I could have a product that worked hundred percent of the time. And those really are the numbers. Like it was a, it was like a 20% degradation in, in, in first swipe fidelity and was done consciously. And the answer is, uh, when I discovered the product, so I, I built two readers. I built a, a long one and a short one, and I tested both of them. Um, the long one worked well always, and people were sort of not impressed. They didn't notice it. They didn't realize how amazing it was. I gave them the short one, and all of a sudden, people were like, what the hell was that? Show me that again. Where do I get? Like All the questions started coming. And I realized that by making something not work that well, I was in fact doing something more important than industrial, just industrial design, making something that was cool. I was making something that got your attention. And this is a really tough thing to do, especially if you're in, if you're in the design world, uh, especially you're making physical objects. And if you want, I'll run into the room. I'll show you a physical object I'm working on, right? Cause I'm, I'm working on a, I'm working on a drinking glass. that's hard to drink from mm-hmm. like, that's my current project. It's so well, actually, let's let's so let's take the previous caller's question, right? Or the previous guy's question. How do you get the attention of somebody who's important? How do you get Herb Kelleher's attention? How do you get so-and-so's attention? Let's generalize that question. How do you get anybody's attention? We're all so busy. You know, as soon as Google gives me permission, I'm going to release a personal paywall so that all of you guys can like block everybody that you don't know. I mean, I'm I'm all in the hide from the world camp. Well, if all of us are hiding and you've got a cool new product, how do you even communicate that this thing exists? You've got something new, great. The world doesn't know. How are you gonna break through that? And the answer is you need a moment of attention. That moment where they kind of, what the hell just happened? And that's what we created with the square reader, making it too small. Because it was too small, it didn't work very well. Because it didn't work very well, people would practice until it worked perfectly. And then once they practice, what they want to do? They want to show off. They want to tell their friends, hey, look at what I can do. Look at this cool thing. Hey, I, I can do it. You can't. I mean, they were, they were bragging using my product. And you know what they're doing else? They're bragging about the rest of my product too. Like it was the best. Like it, it saved us millions and millions of dollars in marketing by making something a little bit crappy. So if you're in industrial design, I think you have this, well, first of all, you have this real responsibility to just not build garbage because a lot of industrial design is just flat out terrible. And I could go on for hours. Um, But that that is not terrible and is thoughtful also has this opportunity to you know, more fully engage. Like, how do you get the 
user or the the human that's on the other end of it to 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 love your product and like how do you do that and that's it's it's a worthy worthy area but you know try making it a little bit worse and see if they get their attention <laughs> thanks that wasn't supposed to be part of the course but. <laughs> i like it jim in your in your journey especially in the early days did you have any coaches mentors or or people that you specifically looked to learn off not a one i wish i had i was always looking for one um as a matter of fact this is funny i used to be somewhat of a stalker when it comes to successful business people i i was always like re reaching herb kelleher wasn't even difficult for me because i had stalked dozens of you know famous people throughout the years trying to get time with them trying to get advice because you know at the time the internet wasn't this thing that you could just you know go on youtube and have somebody pontificate for 20 years you didn't have courses like yours that are accessible to everybody like you had to you know be born into it it seemed and there was no um i found no source of information uh so I would talk to these business leaders and every single one of them gave me horrible advice. But that was because I was doing something differently. Like I was on the other side of the line where their advice, which worked perfectly well in the world where you had a dozen competitors and known quantities and, and, and like all this management stuff that like applied over here, it didn't apply where I was. And I would take their advice and I would go try it and it would blow up in my face. Um, and and this, this was not just mentors, this was friends. Like I'd have, I'd have trouble at my company and I'd, I'd go to my friend who had a similarly sized company and I didn't realize that my company was doing something new and his company was doing something that was established. Like I didn't see that line. I didn't, I didn't recognize it. So, oh my God, I made this mistake for like 20 years of applying the right rules to the wrong situations and, and getting terrible results. So, um, yeah, I, I never had a mentor. I always wanted one. Um, I thought I had found one in AP Giannini, who was the guy that founded the bank of Italy. Uh, but he died, you know, 30 years before I was born. So like, I never got to talk to the guy. I've read his journals. I've read, I mean, I've read everything about the man. I feel like I know him. I feel like we'd be buddies if he was alive, but he's not. That's why meeting Herb Kelleher was such a big deal for me because he was the other guy who I was like, oh my God, I'd really love to talk to him. We might look towards wrapping up. I've got a few more questions for you. I guess you, you, you did touch on it earlier, but who would you say this course is directed for? Who, who should be looking at, at this course? People who might find themselves in a situation where they're trying to do something that's never been done. And I know you can't predict if that's going to happen, but you know, are you the sort of person who solves problems? Uh, and what problems do you choose to solve? You know, like if your idea of a good business is find something that makes money that's provably 
you know, doable, find the best people doing it, learn what they've learned, do what they've done. Yeah, you can change it a little bit, but basically do the same thing. That is a winning strategy. I wouldn't knock it at all. Um, you probably won't get a lot of value from what I teach. Um, however, you're going to be alive for a while. You are going to come up against situations in this world that you don't like and that nobody's figured out what to do with. Um, and what do you do then? You quit? Well, you're not quitting because you haven't really started. But do you fail to start? And so, like, I honestly think everybody should read the course. I, I think everybody should, should, should get the knowledge. And here's why. You may never find yourself in that situation or may find yourself in that situation and say, okay, I'm not going to do anything. But I bet your ass you will know somebody who is. You will, you, one of your friends, one of the people you know, we all know about 150 people, right? One of those people will be in that situation. And when you see that person and everybody else is saying, come back to the herd, don't do it. That's stupid. It'll never work. You can sit there and go, ah, it's not going to be pleasant, but here you go. Here's what it's like on that other side of the line. And that's how we get change from this. That's how this world gets new solutions to problems that we don't have yet, right? And it's brutal and unpleasant, but that's how the world moves forward. So I want more people doing that. So I would love to see everybody take this course. Um, and if not for you, for your friend who's about to step across that line, or maybe you, like you don't, this is, this is the thing about me. I never start, I never start, start out trying to do something original. I did not my goal. I want to fix this thing. In the case of Square, I was like, I, want, I just want to get paid. I feel like it would take a month. I just want to get paid. It's still a little company so I can get paid. Turns out, big problem. Hard to do. We had to build all this stuff. We built all this stuff. We ended up being worth $100 billion. At least we were. I don't think we're worth that anymore. But, you know, stock market's been like that. Whatever. The point is, I was not expecting that ride. And if I'd known the stuff that I know now, it would have been a lot less terrifying. And I do mean terrifying. I mean like real fear. Like, you know, yeah. trips to the doctor with phantom pains, weird. Like right. That, that was, I, that's just life. So I think I would have been better prepared. And I, I want to better prepare others because those are the people who are going to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. We've got one more question from Scarlett before I get Scarlett to uh, come and ask. Uh, just for those who are wondering, the course uh, is available for those of you who are Founder Plus members. Also, for those of you who are coaching students, uh, the course will be in the platform. Bob, I think you've already gone through the course from what I from what I heard earlier. So that's, that's good to know. Uh, so if you are interested in knowing more about the course, uh, please just check out our website. You could also get in touch with me um scarlett are you with us yeah i am um so first of all i really enjoyed the delivery of your course um it's actually really it made the process a lot easier but otherwise um i would just like to know 
how you managed to convince the people from MasterCard to change the regulation, that one regulation that forbids exactly what you were trying to do? Wow. You know a lot about Square's history. Did, but did you read the innovation stack? Was this, how did you know that? It's a perfect question. I'll answer it. But like, how did you even know to answer that? It's in, it's in the course and I <laughs> went through okay. your course. So. Okay. Great. Great. It's, it's, it, it is there. It's a, uh, but it's a, uh, a uh, very, very specific and cool question. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, MasterCard had a rule specifically prohibiting card present aggregation, which was what Square did. It was the foundation of what we were doing. Um, and they had this rule on their books for 20 years, and we had to get them to change it. So how did we do that? Um, first, we had a working product. We did not have some theory. We did not have some PowerPoint presentation or some keynote presentation where we said, oh, wouldn't it be great if? No, we went in and did a demo. And the demo went like this. Well, so first of all, you got to understand, Jack Dorsey and me, um, we're very different people. I talk a lot. He doesn't talk much at all. But when I am demoing, I never interrupt. I never say anything. Jack sits like a monk. Doesn't even get nervous. And we'd done this demo for all the VCs around the country. We'd done this demo for dozens. Like this was a year and a half into the company. Like we were so polished at this demo. We didn't even have to look at what we were doing. And here's how the demo went. We walked into the office. I asked the head of MasterCard for his MasterCard. I said, let's say you just bought me something, or I just bought, you just bought something from me. I swiped his card, turned around, had, said, you know, sign this. And I said, great. Dollar just went into my bank account. And he's like, that's a demo, right? And I was like, no, sir, that's live. That really happened. That money is gone from your card and in my bank account. And he looked really, really sternly at me and he said you realize what you just did violates our operating regulations and i said yes sir i know that there was total silence in the room for 20 seconds and he looked at his team and he said well i guess we have to change our regulations and he walked out of the room and that's how mastercard came over I think if I'd said anything after that, it might have killed it. I think if Jack and I had not been paying attention to him and had been paying attention to our, our slides or our pre, like if, if we had been anything but focused outward, it might have gone uh, sideways. And I don't know, like I didn't, I didn't ask him to change the regs. I just told him that. I was aware that we were in full violation of everything they were doing, you know, like, and, and he got it. Um, again, humility, I think in, in these, in these pitches and also shut the hell up, you know, like if you're explaining something to somebody and they're smart, you don't have to go into the details. Just what, 
Like, what's the problem? Why are we in this room? He understood it. And, and it saved the company. Like if he, if he'd gone the other way, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here today. Just never happened. I guess in your case, it's actually quite the opposite of humility. It's actually, you know, it's so ballsy that you went in knowing that what you created outright um, violate their regulations. And they just, I guess they're, I don't know, probably just appreciate. Well, but don't put it in their face. Like, yeah, I violated their regulations, but I was like, you guys have to change your regulations. That wasn't what I said. I said, look at how cool this thing is. Look at this beautiful thing that we've built. Look at how wonderful it would be for all these merchants. Here, try it. And he thought it was a demo. And I was like, no, 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 this thing's live. <laughs> to prove that it actually works, like to prove the whole thing, there was no theory involved. Like it actually worked. It was just complete, you know, it was an unregulated nuclear powered device. And the, you know, the government's sitting there, well, you're not supposed to have plutonium. And you say, you're right. I'm not as a civilian supposed to have this like big ball of plutonium, but yeah, there it is. And you know, don't get thyroid cancer. I appreciate your um, your answer. Thanks. I, I I hope I hope you get to put it to play sometime. Build the thing first. Show them the demo. Shut up. The demo <laughs> speaks for itself. Got it. Thanks, Scarlett. Okay, Jim. Thank you. Thank you kindly for your time this morning or this afternoon, depending on where everybody is in the world. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been very, very insightful. And I like the way that, you know, there's a there's something out there now in our course catalog that really challenges people again to challenge the norm and step outside the box and 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 take that leap of faith. So I really want to thank you for your time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.